Welcome to the Family Law Now podcast, and I want to welcome our listeners and our viewers on YouTube. Today, we're going to talk about spousal support during the pandemic. Spousal support is a big, complicated issue. We have two podcasts on it already, part one and part two, where we do a deep dive into support calculations with various scenarios with and without children. Uh, today, we're going to talk about what can we expect about spousal support going forward in light of the pandemic and people losing their jobs. If you like this video, <clears throat> excuse me, or this audio, please hit the like button below. Uh, you can share it with your friends. A bell will show up. You can click the bell. You'll get a subscription to our future videos. If you want to leave a comment or have a question, there's a comment box at the bottom of your screen. Just type it in there. We're going to be going through the comments each week and doing a separate video answering uh, all the questions we get on YouTube. So without further ado, let's get at it. We have uh, three very experienced lawyers, all very excellent in what they do. Uh, we'll just do a brief introduction. Walida, you want to give us a start? Sure. Thanks, Russ. Thanks for having me today. Uh, I practice family law and litigation in Lindsay. I've just completed 30 years at the bar, so I guess, but I don't know whether you called me seasoned or senior, but just been at it for 30 years. Still don't feel like 30 years sometimes. And my practice, as I said, quick, eh? it does go by quickly. Oh, yeah. As I said, my practice is in Lindsay. And just to add in that this pandemic hasn't really changed that much about what I do because I'm very fortunate to have an office in my home. So I've been able to continue uh, with operating my office, even while we're dealing with all these mandatory closures. You're ahead of the curve. You've been doing the uh, remote work from home or your office from home for some time. That's right. Yeah, excellent stuff. Thank you, Rolita. Josh, you want to take go next? Good morning, Russ. Uh, again, thanks for uh, letting me be on the podcast. Uh, I'm Josh Lieberman. I'm a lawyer in Oshawa. Uh, I've been practicing for 22 years. Um, I do general family law litigation as well as collaborative family law, uh, as well as I'm an FRO panel lawyer, as well as a member of the OCL panel. Um, so I have a pretty broad practice. Um, and a member of the Collaborative Practice Institute. Let's not forget that one. Yes. Sorry, Russ. Yes. Uh, member of the Collaborative Practice Institute. Um, so <clears throat> I have broad experience in most areas of family law, including child protection, uh, general family law issues, custody access, representing child's views, etc. So um, I'm looking forward to helping on this and hopefully be informative. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us today, uh, Josh. Carolyn Warner, welcome. Thank, thank you, Russ. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, exclusively practicing family law in Whitby, Ontario with Russell Alexander Family Lawyers. Um, I go to court. I do outward court settlement discussions as well, and I am also collaboratively trained. Thank you for joining us. Um, as I said at the intro, spousal support is a very complicated subject. So we're just gonna do some broad strokes in our uh, overview. Again, if you wanna take a deeper dive, we have additional information on our podcasts and on our sites. Um, all the lawyers have excellent information. Um, but let's start at the beginning. Uh, how is spousal support calculated? Uh, Carolyn, you wanna just do a brief intro on that one? Sure, I'd be happy to help there. So basically, it's a starting point would be to look at uh, line 150 of the notices of assessment from both the payer and the recipient. 
And then that would be a starting point to plug it into, we call the spousal support advisory guidelines. Now the spousal support advisory guidelines, uh, the name is indicative of what they are. They're just a guideline. Um, it's a starting point for the discussion. And then from there, we look at the ranges of support. So there might be a low range, a mid range, and a high range. When we find the appropriate payment from the ranges, we would look at a variety of factors, such as the length of the duration of the marriage or cohabitation, um, the income disparity between the parties, and other factors such as contributions to the marriage, um, whether they are um, compensatory or non-compensatory support. Right. we do look at, uh, there's several software available to do that. The lawyers, we do use a particular software, but it's important that um, individuals do consult with a lawyer to help them. As you've mentioned, it is a very complicated um, area of law. Yeah. Um, the next part we were looking at would be um, the duration. Um, and, and again, the duration of what, how support is paid is based on a variety of factors, which would include the length of the ages of the parties, um, how long the relationship has lasted. Um, sometimes it might be appropriate to pay support um, for a limited short period of time. Um, in cases of long marriages and relationships, um, support might be paid on an indefinite period of um, time. And there's a lot of circumstances that need to be factored into um, to make a determination of that. Yeah, great tips. Um, the software we use, the Spousal Support Advisory Guidelines, is because people are in different tax brackets and there's different talk, tax consequence and it also helps us generate options. Compensatory support really talks about the role that people play during the course of the marriage. A simple example, if, if, a, if a spouse stays at home and raises the children and the other one works, that spouse's career may be delayed and so there may be some compensation in the sense that the two spouses would be earning different incomes at the end of the relationship. But Josh, you and I have had cases, uh, several cases involving business owners. Yes. Um, and, and you know, properly so, a lot of business owners write off expenses um, to reduce their tax liability with Canada Revenue Agency. Um, how do we treat that when it comes to spousal support? Yeah, well, when it comes to spousal support, it's unfortunately not as clear cut as if we were dealing with child support because the child support guidelines, as far as calculation of income is concerned, is actually very comprehensive. There's section 19 of the guidelines, which basically talks about the factors to consider when um, a person's income may not be as stated in the guideline in, in their tax return. Um, Section 19 talks about intentional underemployment or improperly improperly claimed expenses and even goes further to say that just because the Income Tax Act says their proper expenses can be deducted from income, that is not the consideration that the courts to take into consideration. What we've done with spousal support is apply that logic by analogy because the guidelines, spousal support advisory guidelines are not very clear on income. So we apply that by analogy, and there was some argument at the beginning whether whether that analogy can be used as far as spouse support is concerned. And I think it's pretty settled now that we can use that by analogy. So it's important to look at if you've got a business owner, particularly a sole proprietorship or um, or a small business or a small corporation, um, you have to look at you have to look at not just the line 150 income. You have to look at 
what's called a statement of business affairs. Um, that is a that is a schedule attached to tax returns that's going to tell you, okay, the business that this payor runs, and actually it's not and should also be emphasized not just payors, it's recipients because spousal support is based upon in large part, a comparison of the incomes. So you can have a recipient that is a sole proprietorship or a sole or a single or a small business person, and their income can also be hidden in such a way that you have to look at that as well as part of the analysis. But basically, you start off with the statement of business affairs. <clears throat> and that's going to say that this person grossed a business income of X. <clears throat> and then they've deducted from that business income these expenses um transportation so vehicle expenses are a big one um a lot of people love to use the business use of home deduction as a large offset for the cost of their mortgage or their utilities and things like that these a lot of business things. owners also like to golf apparently right well yes <laughs> golf and uh it can get quite involved but you look at these you go down that statement of business affairs and it will tell you what has been deducted from this gross amount. And you look at, and then you want to look at those a little bit more closely. Um, the one, the one that always gets me is obviously the, the, you, the vehicle expense. Right. I, if, if, and, and I've seen this, you've got somebody who say is a bookkeeper and okay. Occasionally they may drive out to their clients to go do work in the work at the offices, but largely they're working out of their own office and the clients are bringing the information to them. So they deduct $10,000 in vehicle expenses and you're sitting there going, well, how frequently do they go out? So you look at that analysis. You have to look at the expense. What are they for? Are they necessary to the business? If they are necessary to the business, then you would keep them there. But if they're not necessary to the business or they are exaggerated, then you would do what we call adding back. Right. So or they would, could be necessary to the business and have a personal element, right? You could right. use the car for groceries and also go to, go to right. meet clients. Right. And that's one of the reasons why the, the judges like to see logs for the vehicles. And you're right. supposed to, Canada Revenue Agency says you're supposed to keep a log for your vehicle if you're deducting it for business expenses. Very, very infrequently does that happen, but uh, Justice Spence once told me, if there's no logbook, I'm adding all the vehicle expenses back in. Right. Um, so you have to analyze the expenses. That's when your work. client's in the hallway writing out a logbook, right? Precisely. Yeah, during the recess, yeah. But that, that, that's the initial analysis that you're looking at. Um, right. And that's one of the reasons why I prefer to get complete tax returns when I'm talking about calculating things like spouse support. The notices of assessment will not tell you any of this information. It's completely so you get all these expenses, Josh, and you're yep. going to add some of them back. What do you do at that point? Well, you basically, you add them back. Now there is in, in the divorce mate software, there is actually an entry for, for um, deductions that have been made because the problem is the tax treatment of that add back is going to be different than the actual income because you're not taxed on that ad back. So the divorce mate software will, you put the entry in the divorce mate software, it will factor in the fact that this deduction that you've made from your income has been 
has not been taxed. So it actually will gross up that add back automatically and include it in the income for the purposes of calculating spousal support. And, and not to make it any more complicated, each business owner may be in a different tax bracket. So the gross up is going to be a different amount. Correct. And, and again, luckily the divorce mate software will look at if you do it properly, if you put in line 150 income as the net business business income and then put in the entry for the addbacks, it will automatically factor in the tax the tax bracket that the uh, that the um, that the payor or the recipient actually is in. Right. So it's important that when you're looking at a sole proprietor or a business owner, um, that you do that analysis and sometimes it can get more complex and that'll maybe get us to the next one. Yeah, that's great analysis. So if you have a T4 employee, line 150 income is relatively straightforward. Business owners, you're going to take a deeper dive in terms of looking at spousal support. But Lita, we know you and I have cases like this as well. It looks like we get all these complicated cases sometimes. We get payers who underreport their income Maybe they mislead their spouse about their income or lie about it, or they have cash business that's not showing up as income. What do we do about these cases? Well, it's a pretty common problem that we encounter. It could be that the person's sole source of income is operating something under the table or off the books, or it could be that that's actually supplementary income that they have. And in both of those situations, we really need to be rather involved in detective work because right. we can't rely on the line 150 income. And we also have the additional hurdle that I always remind my clients of is that this person's ready to lie to the government on their tax return. Uh, so we can't expect that they're going to come to family court and tell us the truth. So this is where being a bit of a detective is necessary. And when I say being a detective, you have to look at the underlying circumstances. So one thing you could look at, for example, is their expenses. Well, how do they pay their expenses? Obviously, they must have some money to do that. Uh, we look at, so disclosure becomes really important in terms of getting the bank account information, the credit card information, everything that helps us reconstruct some kind of a pattern of income. Now, there are cases where if the person is, you know, absolutely carrying through on the cash, that cash is just not going to be found. If they get their cash, they don't deposit in the bank, they don't pay down expenses with it, they just use it for some purchases, that's gonna be harder to find. But then we have to remember that these parties were together. And when they were together, they obviously had a way, a lifestyle that they engaged in. So this is where your client being able to tell you things like, well, we went on uh, two vacations a year and those expenses were all paid for well, I don't know where the money came from, but we paid you, They could even tell you about the cash income that they witnessed during the course of the relationship. Well, that's right, because obviously when they were together, it shouldn't have been something that was hidden or likely wasn't something that was hidden. And right. so the other party, your client, has a lot of information that helps you to be involved in a reconstruction. In a case that I've done not once but twice, uh, we same same guy coming back again on his on his spousal support uh we actually he's an electrician and we actually got an order to get his quant his 
permits, first of all, to show what kind of work he was getting done by permit, which luckily something like electrician is supposed to have a permit for their work. And then secondly, we went to all of the electrical suppliers to find out how many panels and large things that he right. was getting to be able to reconstruct what his, what his costs uh, actually were. And he was spending money on those things, obviously because he was making money uh, on those things. And we were able to get a significant income reconstruction for him where he did claim his income at about 35,000, which is a very much an underreport, we were able to reconstruct it up to $120,000. So uh, that is, but that took a lot of, of detective work and it wasn't really just a lawyer's work. It involved involving a financial professional in looking at that and looking at the records and being able to say, this looks appropriate, this doesn't look appropriate. And ultimately, if we, had to proceed all the way with that. We were able to settle that on the second day of trial, but uh, we actually had an expert ready to testify over those very issues. So my bottom line summary on this is it has to be worth it. There has to be enough of a difference to make it worth doing all of this extra work. If a person is just operating with perhaps a few thousand dollars in cash, it's probably not going to be worth it to do the kind of work it takes to add on all of this extra part to create that income, because ultimately it probably is going to involve an assessment by a judge to determine that issue. The other parties, as I said, ready to lie to Revenue Canada, ready to lie in court, why would they possibly now say, oh yeah, you caught me, I'm going to go ahead and agree that that's my income. And I suppose we do the same analysis Josh just talked about. If you find 50000 in cash and can prove it, that 50000 might be grossed up to seventy-five or maybe more. Yeah, that's right. And obviously what they used the cash for is going to make a difference because even speaking about the expenses that Josh was talking about, you know, the real the reality is that someone who has a business can deduct things that a person who doesn't have a business can't. And so the whole idea of that equal treatment, you know, uh, somebody who's an employee pays for their vehicle, for example, with after-tax dollars. Someone who is writing off their vehicle through their business, it's with pre-tax dollars. So that's where trying to do the gross up becomes important because we are trying to equalize the playing field. Someone should not have an additional advantage for spousal support and child support purposes, the government allows those advantages. They're not breaking the law by doing it. But for means testing, looking at the actual lifestyle and available income, that's where it becomes important to look at how the tax treatment is, is applied and making sure that we try to do something to make it of a parity in the family law situation. Right, that's a great analysis, Walida, thank you. I was recently interviewed by the Globe and Mail about custody and access issues and, and uh, I indicated, I think, you know, the next big wave we're going to see is potentially support issues coming to the court or coming to family lawyers. You know, lots of people have lost their jobs or being asked to stay at home, being laid off, or their businesses are simply collapsing, you know, restaurants, a whole bunch of industries are experiencing this. Generally speaking, with the loss of income, usually support obligations are going to be subject to variation. Government programs are being implemented slowly. Um, that's going to bridge the gap for hopefully a lot of these people. Their incomes aren't going to be the same, but it's going to provide some support. So I guess, you know, the next question we're going to be looking or the lawyers are going to be considering is, uh, is spousal support going to be considered urgent? And if it is, how is the court going to deal with it? Or 
you know, are we going to have to wait until it becomes a crisis? You know, we, the courts has sort of a limited ability to deal with cases right now. But Josh, maybe you could discuss a little bit about hardship or intentional underemployment. You know, hardship is sort of a tough argument to make in the best of times, but what's your take on that issue? Well, I think for now, and looking at, because there hasn't really been a litigation of a support case under COVID. Uh, most of the cases that seem to be coming down the pike right now uh, deal with custody, a parent denying access, because of COVID and things like that. And the, and the courts are all over the road at the moment as to what considered urgent. I'm fairly certain, especially in light of um, the FRO's declaration that they're not going to be doing things like license suspensions and things like that, that it's going to be hard to make um, a hardship argument now and get heard. Um, down the road, once the courts open up and we get more space and they start dealing with broader issues, I'm, you're right, there will be more hardship arguments. Um, I'm going to base, uh, without having a crystal ball in front of me, um, looking at how the courts have dealt with issues such as custody and access, I think a lot of, and harkening back to 2008 when we had the uh, financial meltdown, how the courts dealt with people like uh, employees like a GM who lost their jobs. I mean, there were there were nearly 9,000 people let go from GM in 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 2008. And mm -hmm. and there was a huge wave of motions to vary spousal and child support. And a lot of deference was given to the circumstances by the court. I mean, this was a major financial situation. Um, so I think arguing hardship is going to be not only more more prevalent, but I think it's going to be given more deference in light of what's been happening, just based upon the track record I've talked about. Um, as far as intentional underemployment is concerned, I mean, that is, that is again, going to have to be seen in the context. Um, you could see are, some support payers sort of using this as maybe an excuse to get right. out of their obligation. Their, their, their industry might not be shut down or they might be an essential service and there could be work for them. They're just choosing not to do it. Right. And that's the thing. And, and that's, it, it's unfortunately though, that's a harder argument to make in, in response because you're going to need to do a little right. bit of homework on it. What is exactly happening in that industry? I mean, for example, the restaurant industry, is is i mean i'm i'm rather surprised that the businesses are surviving the way they are but it's going to be it's going to be a hard argument but i mean if you're in i'll a, take it now josh <laughs> yes i know but i'm just saying once that all ends and see what happens but the point is that the intentional unemployment is going to be a harder argument to make unless you've done some kind of analysis of what's happening in the industry that the payor is in um, and that's, I, there's going to be, and I think there's going to be a honeymoon period that frankly, most industries have been impacted severely. So I think the courts are going to recognize that, but there is going to be a point in time, maybe a year out where the court is going to say, okay, well, that was a year ago, things have rebounded what are you doing now? 
right. the argument I see. Because again, the deference I saw in 2008 to people losing their jobs and losing their houses and things like that kind of petered out by 2010. The courts are saying, okay, 2008 happened. We got it. We survived. We gave you the break then. What's happening now? Right. It's going to be kind of how I see it happening as far as both intentional unemployment and hardship is concerned. That's a great approach. Take a look at what we did in the previous crisis and might give us a bit of a roadmap going forward. Just for our listeners and viewers, uh, Josh mentioned FRO. FRO is the Family Responsibility Office. It's uh, part of the government of Ontario, Canada. They get court orders or agreements and they enforce the support provisions. They have lots of tools to support, sorry, to enforce support garnish wages, suspend driver's license, even put people in jail. We're going to talk about FRO a little bit later, but I guess the first step we need, I think we would probably look at, and maybe Carolyn, you can help me out with this, is what's the basis of spousal support? Would that be sort of the first question we look at? Yes, yeah, so I think you'd really have to look at well, where uh, was the support uh, determined? So was the support um, at entered into voluntarily? Um, was it done through a separation agreement? Um, was it uh, done through a court order? Um, or did the parties come up with some other agreement um, through a contract? So the basis of the support is going to be relevant um, when we're looking at the whether or not it's urgent. Um, in situations where it's uh, done voluntarily, then the parties, they can always have other options to try and negotiate or um, adjust uh, support on a temporary basis um, through discussions with their lawyers, um, or they might have to try to, um, to return to the court um, to see if that it can be dealt with that way. Right. And I guess, Walida, I guess the specific terms of the support agreement are going to come into play as well, right? Well, the, the support agreement or the court order, uh, both right. of those obviously yeah. would be applicable. So uh, there can be terms within the agreement that talk about the support being time limited. So we have to look at how far into the period of support we are. And obviously a lot's going to depend on how long this whole pandemic and restrictions go on because, right. you know, if we're talking about a month or two in the picture of a 12 month year, it's not going to be potentially a, as large an impact on the income as if we're talking about something that is going for three, four, six months. So that's going to be an important factor. The other thing is the definition of terms, and this is a term that is always confusing to clients. When we have an indefinite obligation, it's not a forever obligation. It's not an unlimited obligation. It just means that we're not able to define how long that's going to go and what's going to allow us to define it is exactly what's happening with the circumstances of the parties. Uh, so before we were dealing with all this pandemic issue, we might have been dealing with a change in circumstances like the retirement of a party or the illness of a party or the remarriage of a party, those types of things that would be changed circumstances and would cause the situation to be reviewed uh, or varied. And review and vary are, are two different things. But we needed to know the circumstances under which they arrived at the support amount to be able to figure out is this a change that would count? So right. perhaps at the time they agreed on their support, the income of the payor was a certain amount. Since that time, the payors actually made more money 
they never changed anything. Then the pandemic caused the payor to now have less income, but perhaps still has more income than the payor had when they first came to those terms. Well, that's not really a change because the terms they agreed to originally, we haven't gone back to that level. We're still above that level or at that level. So just saying that my income has changed isn't necessarily going to be answered to the question of, is it appropriate to go back and, and change the terms here? And some of these agreements can be very detailed, right? The change could be specified to say a change in $10,000 plus or minus will trigger a review or a variation. Yes. And so, again, the terms of that agreement are going to be really important. And I'm stressing terms of agreement as opposed to court order because the court order does not have those types of things in it. The court order with everything in court and just picking up even from what Josh was discussing with you, courts are reactive, not proactive. Right. And so you have to have the situation occurring first, not theoretically, I'm, my income is going to be down, but my income is actually down. And here's the proof of it to be able to say, this is what needs to be happening on a go forward basis. So the obviously the issues of how they came to those terms are going to be very important. And as well, the issue of uh, how is the support coming just on the, the means difference, ability to pay and the income of the parties, but it, or is there also a compensatory aspect to it that the amount was arrived at because of this inequity in the relationship mm -hmm. and the recipient needs to have that additional basis or compensation being given to them? Obviously, we need to keep the compensation aspect going even if the incomes have changed. And another factor that I thought of when we were thinking about how to approach these topics is we can't forget that we need to look at the financial situation of the recipient right. because the reality is for the recipient right now their expenses might be up or they might be down they're going to be hurting on, too you're right right so yeah. or or they might actually be saving money maybe it's just me but you know i'm not going out to restaurants right now and i'm not spending money that i was out in the world before while i could and saving so money on it, gas, that's for sure right right so there may be some situations where the expenses have actually gone down and so again the comparison of the incomes and expenses of the parties is going to become important on any kind of analysis if it's being done by way of a of a review which in a review it's starting from the beginning. Let's look at the, right. where these two are standing right now and what needs to happen on their circumstances right now versus a variation which says, let's look at where they were before and is it enough of a change to now talk about making a change? So those words are very important when we have those in there. But the bottom line is in any of these situations, communication with the other party is going to be the best starting point to just say, here's where I am right now. This is what I'm going to need to do. I will review this with you when we have our whole picture, rather than just keeping silent and not paying anything or hoping this whole thing is going to go away. It's never a good idea to just stick your head in the sand and, and hope for the best because it's going to accumulate way worse than if you at least right. tried to broach the issue. And if you do have to go to court one day over this, the fact that you tried to broach the issue and say, this is what I can do instead, not, I'm not paying anything, but out of my benefits, this is how much I can afford to pay, it's going to go a long way towards getting that support from the court when that day comes. 
great tips, you know, for a lot of clients, it's human nature for them to stick their head in the sand or ignore it. Court may want to say, why don't you try to address it earlier if you're going to be seeking a retroactive adjustment, you know, put the other person, the support recipient on notice. Um, these support orders and agreements also include material change clauses. Now we can spend an hour talking about what material change is, and I think the facts of each case will generate different results. I think it's fair comment to say the pandemic is a change that most people did not see coming uh, unless you entered into your spousal support order during the pandemic. Um, but if it's a, an order from a year or two ago, people weren't anticipating the economy to be shut down the way it is today. So certainly that's a material change. Um, but we should probably turn our minds in terms of what options are available uh, to deal with spousal support and changes to payers' incomes. Josh, do you want to take a look at that? Yes, thanks. Um, well, it's pretty clear that the court is not an option at this point. Um, the courts aren't going to consider it urgent. They're not going to deal with it. So you have to look at it from, uh, to borrow the phrase that keeps coming down from the court, you have to be creative on dealing with this. Um, there is the option of speaking with the recipient and trying to work something out. Um, Wileita kind of addressed some of the factors that should be discussed with the recipient, especially in light of an agreement or court order. Because I mean, legally speaking, if the court order or the agreement doesn't contemplate changes, there is a there is a very small basis for a recipient to agree to do anything. I have an order, I have an order, you don't want to follow it, too bad, life's rough. And what are you going to do about it? Because you're not going to find a judge. Um, so you have to approach it, you have to approach it properly. There are options available that might assist. Um, there are a lot of mediators and arbitrators out there who are now doing mediation arbitration through Zoom or by phone or things like that. Yeah, so that's a great tip. There are lots of professionals still open for business. Yep. Um, you can contact your lawyer. I mean, I've had a couple of calls. I've actually had several calls over the last two weeks. Most of the calls I've received have been from people saying, well, I'm paying X amount of dollars, but I've just been laid off and I don't have the money. What do I do? And, and I kind of go over their options. We can, I mean, generally speaking, the starting point should be the agreement or order because that should outline what you can do. If it doesn't, then you try and be creative. So contacting your lawyer, especially the one that negotiated or, or litigated your case is best because they'll have the background to be able to consider what your options are. Yeah, um, likely from the first go around. Right. Um, now, there is a collaborative option. Um, a lot of collaborative lawyers are still operating. I actually just completed a collaborative file from start to finish during this pandemic. Can you and break that down for our listeners, Josh? What is it? What does it, do you mean by collaborative? What's that word okay, mean? Col collaborative family law is a process relatively new process, um, about 20 years old in this country, uh, uh, to try and negotiate an agreement. It's a, it's a new way, it is a way of negotiating. And the idea basically is, is that the lawyers assist the, the, the lawyers assist the 
parties and trying to get to an agreement as opposed to it being driven by positions and the law. We're trying to deal with interests. Um, we try not to come out saying, well, I need to reduce child, I re need to reduce spouse support or I'm going to go live in a shoebox kind of thing. We kind of say, well, look, my income has changed. We need to address this. And how do we address it? And we try and work things out in that fashion. Um, collaborative is meant to be non-confrontational, non-positional, and it's always better to do that because if you, you know, you send a text to your your ex saying, "Look, I just lost my job. I'm going to be out on the street in five in five days if you don't cut things. If you don't stop taking support, you're automatically going to get the uh, you're going to obviously going to get the recipient going." what the hell do you think you're doing right. so you got their backup you've got your backup and this thing is just going to go around and round round whereas opposed uh, whereas in a collaborative approach we would say look payor has lost their lost their job their income is not what it was under the agreement they're in a bad position how are we going to help payor kind of thing right. as opposed to making demands and things like that so collaborative approach can avoid can avoid turning a bad situation worse by saying okay don't come at them like this let's try and work out a resolution that works for everybody usually so clients are much happier they have they have a chance to be heard they get to craft a result that they uh, choose and participate in as mm -hmm. opposed to having one imposed on them by the court right and more importantly it's one in which you do your best to make it work for both people. And I mean, the payor may be very well in dire financial circumstances because of the loss of their job, but that's not going to convince the recipient to give them a break. What's going to convince the recipient to give them a break is other factors that you can discuss without having to put the 900 pound gorilla in the middle of the conversation right. saying, this guy's going to go bust unless you unless you give them a break that's not going to work the kind of look there are ways around this we can work out other options that we can discuss without putting an initial position out there so right. we try and deal with all angles as opposed to this because there are there there are several ways to skin a cat um you can you, there is not just one way and collaborative tries to go for the way that works for everybody right so that's a great analysis, Josh. Uh, there's lots of options to resolve matters outside of the court system. Lots of professionals on standby. Uh, a lot of the lawyers I know with uh, know their phones are a little bit slower. There's fewer emails. Their schedules are opening up. So certainly the, it's easy to access a lawyer now. Some have shuttered their offices, but most that I know continue to operate remotely. Um, but let's just, let's take the scenario where the support recipient is not going to agree to a change. Uh, I guess, Carolyn, maybe you can help us with this. Can, uh, can our clients or can people go to court to deal with spousal support right now? Are courts open? What's happening with the court in Ontario? So right now they do have a direction that the courts are open. They're only hearing urgent uh, case conferences or urgent emergency matters. Um, it's, it's all done via email um, to the appropriate jurisdiction court. Um, it's, it's a two-step process actually. So the first step, uh, your lawyer would prepare a, a 
in writing a motion to the court asking for permission to have an urgent case conference or an urgent motion. Now, when they do that step, it has to be very concise. Um, the materials are very limited. It's, I think it's four pages that you're allowed to present to the judge. Um, you have to get very down to the point um, and then the judge would make a determination on whether or not um, a matter is urgent. And then after that is done, it would go to an, another judge or it could technically be the same judge that would then hear um, the case conference or the emergency matter. We've had several um, cases like that with mixed, mixed uh, success, right? That's correct. So it's it's and the one right that was here. mixed to the appeal court, but <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So I mean, you throw you you give it your all, um, right. and you put it in there, and then it's 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 up for determination um, whether or not it, it's found to to be urgent. Um, and I mean, it's challenging when you only have four pages. Yeah, <laughs> different judges have different views of urgency, right? So. Um, you're not, you know, it's not one judge who we know is how they're going to treat certain matters. There's still a certain degree of uncertainty and how the court's going to uh, approach your materials. That's right. And as Josh has mentioned, I mean, we haven't seen any of the cases come out um, since the, the pandemic that uh, deal specifically with um, spousal support. Um, there are some that have come out that, you know, have a, a financial component and access, and it seems like the access issues get trumped before the financial. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not, there might not be a case down the road that comes out. Like right. That. Access is certainly the issue today with people trying to change custody or overholding mm -hmm. access. And uh, I think seven, eight, nine months down the road, probably support is going to be on the table a lot more than it is right now. Yeah, I agree. Sort of cut you off there. Um, so any other tips on urgency in terms of how the court's going to approach it? Um, I think it's just important um, to, to realize that, you know, you're skipping the queue with in front of everybody, um, you're doing it by emergency. So it's probably best to, I would say, you know, you want to consult with a legal counsel to get the advice before you um, try doing it on your own. I guess one option mm -hmm. too, Carolyn, is um, there are offering urgent case conferences as well. Yes, I had one this morning with Justice McLeod actually over the phone. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, they, yeah, that is that's an another, that's another, it's not a formal motion, but tell us what an urgent case conference is and how that helps people dealing with issues before the court. Right. So, I mean, you could go with the urgent case conference. So I, the difference between a case conference and the motion would be the case conference is you'll have a judicial opinion on the issues. Um, and then uh, you, you can hope for reaching a settlement or um, a negotiated agreement that way. Whereas if you go ahead with the motion, um, the judge would have the ability to make a, a decision that uh, the parties are bound by. And usually that would be, you know, a temporary decision. Um, it wouldn't be a final decision, but it would be temporary that the parties would have to follow. So, I mean, the option is to try and do um, a conference rather than a motion to get the opinion and hopefully, um, you know, there might be able to res resolve the, the matter that way. Might be an easier way to get around the issue of urgency too. Courts may be more willing to give an opinion at an urgent conference and make an order uh, with an incomplete um, 
with an incomplete record before it in terms of affidavits and other supporting if issues. I've seen some cases where the court has said this record's incomplete, I'm gonna dismiss the motion uh, because um, the lawyer hadn't done a good job or a good enough job preparing the financial statement and other information the court needed to make an urgent motion on. Yeah, and, and you do see that also. There's another one where they said there's too much materials. So there was one case where they said there's too much materials before the court. And because it's all done electronically and um, over the phone, the judge said um, he wanted them, the lawyers in person. So, I mean, it goes both ways when, when you have to think about it. So a conference would be um, ideal. I think especially if both parties are represented, they have lawyers to see if they can, um, you know, narrow it down or come to a resolution that way. And just as a matter of strategy, it's hard to get a lot of these facts down to four pages. It's easier, it's easier to write a 10-page brief than it is a four-page brief, uh, but it must be frustrating when you put your four pages in and the other side shows up with 15. <laughs> Uh, so, Walida, can we talk a little bit about what actually constitutes urgency right now? Sure. Well, this is the way the court is defining urgency. So the concern must be immediate, and that is one that cannot await resolution at a later date. So that kind of makes sense. It's urgent for a reason. Uh, the concern must be serious in the sense that it significantly affects the health or safety or economic well-being of parties and or their children. So I just right. want to highlight there's several modifiers in there. It has to be serious and a significant effect on health, safety, or economic well-being. So that is going to be a bit of a hurdle with respect to that matter. Uh, the concern must be definite and material rather than a speculative one. It right. must relate to something tangible, a spouse or child's health, welfare, or dire financial circumstances, rather than theoretical. Uh, that's something I spoke about earlier. The courts are reactive, not proactive, and so they're going to need the facts to have actually occurred, as opposed to, I think my employer won't hire me back when this pandemic is over. I mean, two uncertainties there. You think they're not going to hire you back. And secondly, we don't even know when the pandemic's over. So right. court's not going to say, well, down the road, this could happen. So we'll give you relief now. Not I likely. Just on that point, it's hard to argue you're in dire financial circumstance if you lost your job, but the government has relief programs that you haven't applied for yet. That's right. Or exactly that there are the relief programs and that those are changing or that the money that you're getting from the relief program uh you know i don't have enough to make my car payment um but the car companies are offering relief and the credit card companies are offering relief and the landlord can't kick you out i mean there's so many forms of relief that i think you would be expected to have reached for all of them before you said oh but i can't pay support for my former spouse or my children. That's exactly the, right. The court's going to require you to flesh those details out in a fairly succinct, convincing way before it's going to grant you relief. That's right. And a, a final one that was identified is it must be one that's been clearly particularized in evidence and examples that describe the manner in which the concern reaches the level of urgency. Right. So specifics, you know, this is my income, these are my expenses, this is what I have on a net basis. And as you said, to try to do that in the course of four pages is very difficult. And when it has to be, again, actual facts, not 
a theoretical or belief-based impact, it's, it's very, very stringent with respect to that matter. And I, I can't reinforce enough the importance of consulting with a lawyer. So far, when I've been asked about this question and I run through a checklist, it, we haven't hit that standard yet on, on these issues. I haven't had one yet where I say, okay, you've got the basis to go forward. Uh, we've either been able to work something out or take the, the steps that we would need to for the future to work those terms out. But a lot of this is just becoming a wait and see uh, basis because of how tightly the court has, has defined it. And I think that if we as lawyers make the mistake of saying, well, let's just throw enough out there and let's see if the court gives us the urgency or not. I think we're possibly going to see a bit of a backlash where the court is not going to be as inclined to look at this. They really are counting on lawyers being the gatekeepers of this information initially on deciding mm -hmm. whether we believe it constitutes urgency, right. not because the client thinks it's urgent and should go forward. We are expected to be the gatekeepers on that first because we do have very limited judicial resources with respect to this. And if we don't spend them wisely, we might see a further restriction on what is available to us. We're actually hoping to get these judicial services expanded. And that also is going to depend on how well the current system is is running so it is something that i would think someone absolutely needs to be consulting with counsel running that past counsel and making sure that they take into account the advice that they're receiving it's it, we want to do more we would really love to be able to get these issues forward but the, it, it's just not there the ability is just not there the facility does not exist for us to do that so it's it, and it's unprecedented we keep hearing that term you know the last pandemic was in 1918. We didn't have family law in 1918, so we can't use that as an example. So we really have to figure this out as we go along. And everybody, I think, is committed to doing the best they possibly can, but we have very severe limits on what we can do. Yeah, great tips, Willita. And we're seeing that in the case law. The courts are telling family lawyers they expect to resolve these disputes outside of the court system, only bring the worst of the worst in terms of urgency to the court's attention. So with respect to spousal support, it may at this point in the pandemic, uh, this is being recorded in April, April next year, we might be talking about something completely different. Hopefully we won't be talking about the pandemic, but at this point, it certainly looks like an uphill uh, battle if you want to deal with support issues and if you are going to hire a lawyer to deal with a support issue or a spousal support issue he or she's really going to need to step up their game to make sure that the court has a very good record before it so it can make such an order so josh uh let's turn to you spousal support does it meet the test of urgency right now Would well go with it well, the funny thing is, even under normal circumstances, it's very rare that spousal support would be considered urgent under the under the Rosen test. The only way I've been able to get around that has been where there has been some action, let's say by the FRO to say, we're going to suspend the license if you don't pay. I've been able to get urgent matter. I've been able to get on an urgent basis a suspension of support or things of that nature. Um, and I even was in front of Justice McLeod two months ago, and the other side kept saying it's not urgent. And I argued, well, they're going to suspend his license if we don't do it. And McLeod agreed with me. But the fact is that, as has been mentioned already a couple of times by myself and Wailita and um, uh, and Carolyn, um, 
the FRO is suspending their enforcement proceedings. So there is not, and as Wiley even expanded, there's there's the the rental housing tribunal suspended uh, suspended um, evictions and. And the emergency declaration has said there's not going to be not going to be these kinds of consequences under the under the current regime. So basically, you don't have that concrete example of urgency that you can graft onto the issue of spousal support because spousal support, in and of itself, the court will never really consider urgent. You have to have some other, as Wailita said, a concrete example of where you know, the sheriff is banging on my door about to kick me out and I don't have any money because all of it's going to the FRO. You don't have that argument. So I would say, and and I mean, and your comment about this is the, this is April, 2020. If this thing goes on till April, 2021, what's going to be, will the situation possibly change? It's, it's possible, but right now, and I would say for the foreseeable future, it is going to be extremely difficult to get a spousal support variation or suspension um, in front of a judge under the certain circumstances. Um, if resources open up, if the issue of urgency is reduced, if they put maybe saying, because there was one argument because the um, uh, Federation of Law, of Law Associations put forward, well, if it's a short motion, say half an hour or less, regardless of being urgent, that the court should take those things. And that was one thing that the Chief Justice was considering before he issued his last practice direction. But unfortunately... It takes half, it takes half an hour for lawyers to say good morning, though, right? Yeah, that's true. But you could you could do some of these variations in half an hour. But the point of the matter is, is that um, the they don't have the resources. The problem is that the court has not been designed to work electronically. Half the courthouses don't have uh, the ability to do Zoom or FaceTime or any other of that. They don't have the facilities in there. The Oshawa court has it, but even that doesn't work. And some lawyers have been kind of embarrassed trying to set up their clients to appear by Zoom, even though they had an order to do that, as you know, and as you know, Russ, in that trial we had a couple of years yeah. ago, um, we couldn't, it couldn't work. And the judge got frustrated and said, your client's on a plane from Vancouver to here tonight if we have to go with the trial. So right. that's the problem we have is that the, the, the system is antiquated. It's not set up. It's not really designed to accommodate this. We've got three trial coordinators in Oshawa that are receiving apparently three to 400 emails a day with requests for urgent matters and things like that, that they have to deal with and they don't have the resources to do it because they can't, they can't forward it on to the clerks because the clerks don't have that kind of, they don't have like a a group email that they can all access. Only the trial coordinators do. So you've got three people doing what would normally be done by about 20. So this is our problem. So, And just maybe people don't know when an urgent matter goes before the judge right now, from what I'm told by the court, the judge doesn't have a copy of the file. They don't have the physical file that is at the courthouse. All they're going to have is the materials that the lawyers provide. So we, we need to provide the previous court order. We need to provide a draft court order. 
this is how limited judges are in terms of their ability to adjudicate matters now, right, Josh? Yep. Yeah, because what happens is, is that you email your materials to the trial coordinator um, or to the judge's secretary, and that's what gets put in front. The, reg the continuing record is staying in the vault. There's nobody down there to bring it up to the chambers or anything like that. And so the judge has only what has been sent by email to either the trial coordinator or to the judge's secretary um, in front of them. And you can't say, well, the order from such and such a date, which is in the continuing record, the judge is going to say, sorry, I don't have the record. I have to, I, you, you have to have in front of me. I mean, I was in a motion a week ago in front of Justice Roselle, and uh, the other side tried to argue that they had disclosed something in their Form 35-1. And the judge said, well, that wasn't in front of me at the time of the motion. All I had was your actual motion, the materials that were filed with the court by email. I don't have access to your 35-1, so you can't rely on that. And so that was a problem for that lawyer because it was an ex-party motion. And if you fail to disclose things in an ex-party motion, you can be kicked out of court and the order can be set aside. So you're right. You have to make sure that there's a complete record. But then, as Carolyn correctly pointed out, the materials are limited to four pages and they're limited to and the conferences are limited to half an hour on one or two issues, not on broad, not on a lot of issues. So the, there's still a lot of restrictions on what the judge will have in front of them and what the judge will be able to and what the judge will be able to rely on and what the judge really can do, because if, it, if, if you have to deal with six or seven issues, the judge is going to say, sorry, I can only deal with one or two and pick your pick your top two. Um, mm. And that's the problem. And top two, in a lot of cases, is going to be custody access. And that's about it. And four, three, four, five, six will be support and what have you. So that's that's the problem. That's why we don't have a lot. That's why there aren't a lot of cases that are dealing with spousal support or child support issues right now because right. the top priority is custody and access. It's a great summary, Josh. Just for our listeners and viewers, the continuing record is basically the court file that the judge is going to read. Uh, it's got all the information, the pleadings, and the materials that the judge would need to make a decision. 35.1, I think that's the parenting affidavit, Josh? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So that's an affidavit that sends out all the parenting details. Carolyn, can you just tell us basically, I know we've seen some of this in the case law. Um, would the court make a retroactive adjustment at a later date if, if when it does get to deal with spousal support issues? I think so. So I think maybe they'll take like a way to see approach, but down the road, um, I think that they would be making the adjustments. Yeah. So you're so, on the hook paying for now, I would say, and then maybe um, down the road they'd adjust it. So even if you're stuck overpaying spousal support and you've lost your employment, there's a chance a judge may adjust for that at a later date if it's been overpaid. Um, I know we added FRO to the uh, agenda today, kind of last minute. Anybody else want to add in some tips about FRO um, and the changes they're making? Lita, anything you want to add to that? Uh, I just want to say that if it's at a level where even FRO isn't enforcing, then there's some recognition there that the circumstances are difficult for people. I only say that because FRO is very effective in their enforcement. So you have an opportunity if your case is going through FRO 
uh, to get in touch with the agent who's on the case and explain the circumstances there. And they do have some discretion with respect to how they're going to collect or the amount they're going to collect. They don't have discretion to change anything that's in the order uh, or the agreement, but they do have discretion with respect to what they're doing collection-wise, and they're not proceeding with their other enforcement measures. So that's another way, if your order is going through FRO, you have an opportunity to deal with the person who's there, who's the agent who handles your, your case. And so that's something else that uh, should be pursued. Just because again- Just on that point, I, I think I, I would imagine the triage judge or the motions judge is gonna ask that question. Did you make efforts to deal with FRO before bringing it to court and saying this is urgent? Mm -hmm. And Fro does have Fro, Fro does have um, adjustments to their enforcement mechanisms. I mean, if you explain to them your circumstances, and uh, I as of, as a Fro counsel, I have been I've reviewed files and looked at materials and have been given direction that okay, well, based upon the person's financial circumstances, don't insist on certain things like don't insist on payment plans that are ridiculous or things of that nature and the, the workers have been told that as well i mean it, they might say okay give me a financial statement they have their own form they'll send it to you send it to me i'll look at it if your circumstances now are that your income is zero and you can't get the benefits or you don't have benefits or things like that we will you know, we will adjust our enforcement posture to right. deal with that fact. So, so Fro does have a little bit of play in the joists, as Wileta pointed out. The Fro has no discretion to change court orders, and that's Unless something. Unless it's non-consent, right? Well, well, this is the thing. That's where a lot of people get into trouble. Is this? They keep. They say, okay, well, I've convinced my spouse to send a notice to Fro to withdraw from Fro enforcement. And that's great. So Fro isn't going to be coming after you. But the reality is that doesn't change your order. And if your spouse changes their mind down the road, which they're perfectly entitled to do, and says, do. Uh, yeah, correct, and says, well, I want it to be enforced again. Guess what? You're right back to square one. And you've got an order that's now being enforced. So it's important that when you, if you are working with your spouse, and if your spouse is being cooperative, that's great, that you make sure that something is in writing and something is transmitted to Fro saying, okay, we've both agreed that for now, this is what's going to happen. And Fro has it on their records. It's an agreement. It's something that both parties have signed and consented to. And Fro will act on that. Um, that's a really important tip. Keep a record of the agreement. Well, it's not even keep a record. Make sure it is in writing and make sure it is transmitted to FRO. So right. FRO has it on their records that, okay, the, the parties on April 17, 2020 agreed that support, support will be suspended for three months or whatever, or, or that support will be reduced to X amount of dollars. You can do that and FRO will act on that. But if you have a verbal agreement with your spouse, about it, then it's not going to be worth the paper it's written on. And Fro is going to say, "We have no, we have no knowledge of this. This is what we've been told by the by the recipient. We're going to have to go with what is in fact in place, which is the which is the order that you varied. And it says you're to pay X amount of dollars, and any payment you haven't made is going to be 
you're going to be dinged for unless you have something in writing transmitted to fro and you you keep it i mean that's the key here and a lot of people get in trouble i mean i've had clients who had agreements with their spouses to end spousal support and for four years they were under the belief and they withdrew from fro and they were under the belief that there's not going to be spousal support and then all of a sudden the spouse decided no i'm going to I'm going to resubmit to the fro and all of a sudden they get hit with a $30,000 bill saying what $30,000 bill support's been suspended. Uh, we, we ended support. Right. Where's it in writing? That's the problem. So it's very important to understand just because fro is not enforcing does not mean that the order is, order or agreement is not, is not in existence. It is as far as fro is concerned, but they will only act on it when they're told to. So it's key very key to make sure you have something in writing. Even in the best of times, it's difficult for clients, I think, to connect with a person at FRO. Have, have has anybody heard anything in terms of how they're communicating with clients now? Are they open? Um, does anybody? They, they any? are still there. They are still there. The workers are still there. Um, they are still taking phone calls. Um, they are still receiving faxes and things like that and emails. Um, I've been in communication with Fro for the last couple of weeks. The legal department is still there, although I think they're working remotely, right. but their staff is still there and they're still communicating. So they are being very fairly responsive and actually surprisingly so. Um, <laughs> um, but they, they are there. It might take longer to get through to them because they don't have the full staff. Um, they, they may be working from home. Um, so they may not be getting their messages today. They might get their messages in two or three days or things like that, but it's best to make sure that you persist in communicating with Fro. And be patient. Great tip. Carolyn, anything you want to add in on the issue of Fro? Uh, no, I think that's covered. I think the key thing is to try and communicate with the worker. Right. Um, yeah, take those steps as your first line. Great tip. All right. Well, you know, this has been a great discussion today. Thank you, everybody, for your insight and contributions. Certainly, I think it's going to help people who are dealing with the issue of spousal support during the pandemic. Uh, let's move into final thoughts and comments. Um, Carolyn, you want to start us off? Yeah, so I think it's um, at the best of times, you know, spousal support is a very complicated issue. Um, it's even more exasperated with the uh, whole pandemic going on. Um, so I think people should just um, think about, um, you know, consulting with a lawyer if they want to take the steps for um, an urgent case conference or urgent motion, um, because it might be one of those topics, unfortunately, that might just have to be put on hold at this time. Yeah, agreed. Josh, final comments? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very important. I mean, I know it's going to be difficult, but it's very important to keep perspective. I mean, it's hard. People are shut in. They're in their houses. There's all sorts of all sorts of media and stuff coming at them left, right, and center. It's not the best time in the world. Um, and it's best to keep though to keep perspective and keep calm. Um, the situations can be dealt with if everybody is prepared to keep perspective um there are there are remedies there are that are available if everybody's prepared to use those remedies so it's it's it yeah, i know it's difficult i know it's hard and it's never the greatest thing on the face of the earth but it is best to keep calm about a situation and 
contact the lawyer and work with that lawyer to work out your resolution to the problem as opposed to panicking and making the situation 10 times worse than it can be. Yeah, or ignoring it altogether. Great tip, Josh. Walida? I have two uh, points. I'll go with the less controversial first. Um, I think we've just seen a really good example of lawyers who have been on different sides of, of these cases, having a consensus on these issues. And so it goes back to the point of this is a very important for the parties to be able to consult with their counsel, because it's not just the, obviously the payer's counsel who's going to be giving this type of advice, but reaching out to the other party who then gets in touch with their lawyer or reaching out to the lawyer directly if they're still on the file, uh, because hopefully they will be counseling their client as the recipient they're doing the best they can right now. This is reasonable to agree on a temporary basis with the agreement that as soon as things go back to whatever normal is, that things will go back to it. Right. The second point, and drop a little bomb on our discussion here. Okay. Uh, I just thought about this when Josh I, was uh, speaking about- Can I pause the recording for this one? Or <laughs> no, I, 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 think it's a, I think it's a point that's worthy of consideration. I had the thought when you were speaking about the issue of, of an overpayment and making a retroactive adjustment. My concern in that situation would be that, that because you were able to pay it, even though it, it caused maybe more difficulty for you, but you were able to pay your full amount of the spousal support. I think ultimately that may be more difficult down the road to then be able to say, well, I need it adjusted. Because again, we're talking about the need of the recipient and the recipient received the full amount of support, needed that full amount of support. So I'm in favor of trying to adjust it on a proportional basis to what you were paying versus what you are receiving, because I think that's more likely to be the way that it would be looked at. But it tends to be, you know, I think the law again, being reactive said, well, you paid it. You know, do you want me to deprive them of money now, now that you're making the money? So support, it's- Support a, payers might be prejudiced if they delay their request. Support payers may be prejudiced if they delay the request, but I think they may also not see the same relief if they, continue to make that payment despite their changed circumstances. That's where I'm suggesting that they make a proportionate adjustment. So if you're receiving $2,000 in government benefits, you continue to pay some amount of support that corresponds to that. And obviously discussing matters with a lawyer can help you uh, decide what is an appropriate amount within that. Paying nothing is gonna be a big problem for you down the road too. I think that's going to buy you a lot of credibility with the court. You, if you go to court and say, you know, my income dropped to 2000, but I still continue to share that with my spouse. Um, it, it makes it look like you, you, you genuinely were trying to resolve matters as opposed to just ignoring your obligation. Oh, absolutely. And I think that the, the whole basis, I mean, that's what good faith is expected of the parties, even if they aren't uh, getting along anymore and they aren't living together anymore, the expectation of good faith is there. So at the same time, somebody trying to manipulate this situation to their advantage, you know, potentially is going to be a, a big problem for them uh, when they do go to court. So the court is always expecting everybody to act in good faith and to be reasonable. That's also the recipient who had a request given to them and didn't acknowledge it and just continued to perhaps stomp their feet and say, nope, 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 I want my money and you're going to have to pay me my money. That's not going to go over well either, I think. Sitting on your hands while the support payer is in crisis and not accommodating mm -hmm. is not going to 
hold well later on if it ends up in court. I agree with that. Well, great insight, everybody. Um, I Certainly, the current trend, I think, right now is spousal support would not be considered urgent uh, if the economy worsens or non-essential businesses remain closed for several months or longer. I think there's going to be increasing pressure on the court to start dealing with these issues. Um, we also correctly, I think, identified that we need to be mindful of support recipients uh, and their need for support uh, when doing this analysis. Clearly, there's going to be no winners or losers in this case. Both, uh, both support payers and recipients are going to be unhappy. Um, but as everybody's indicated, talk to a lawyer. If your income's dropping, try to make an adjustment or an agreement now outside of the court system. We've given you lots of options in terms of how that can be done. Uh, I wanna thank Carolyn, Josh, and Walida for joining us today. If you've liked this video, hit the like button, share it with your friends. If you have questions about our podcast or our video today, put them in the box at the bottom. We're gonna answer the questions at the end of each week and do a new video for that. Um, want to thank all our listeners and viewers for tuning in today and be safe. Thanks for having us, Russ. Thank you, thank Russ. You.